Well, we're having mic problems, as you all know. And my favorite thing is not being bound to a mic, but we'll stay as close as we can to it and trust that uh, God will uh, do the work. This objection that many followers of Christ or those who would would be followers of Christ have about Christianity is this. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ real or a hoax? If his resurrection was a hoax or a fantasy of the first century Christians, then following him would be absolutely ridiculous. Why? Because Jesus himself said these words from Matthew chapter 20. Listen to these words. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the son of man will be betrayed to the leading priests and teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged and with a whip and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Jesus is either a liar or he suffers from illusions of grandeur. Here he is saying of himself that one thing you have to remember, disciples, is that soon I'm going to be flogged and beaten. All of these things were prophesied in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. And then I'm going to die and then I'm going to be raised from the dead. How do do you predict such a thing? What's going on with this man that we call Jesus, the son of God? This morning, I would like to face this objection about the resurrection squarely. And to do that, we have to delve into an area that I have a lot of interest in. And that's the so-called conflict between science and history, between science and the Bible, between science and our faith. Now, most of you know that I have a background in science, and so my search to find sense out of the universe and out of God started when I was in high school. So the years from 1962 to 1970, those are the years I was in high school and college, um, that was a very tumultuous time in our world, and it was a very tumultuous time in my soul. Let me tell you why. I grew up in a very fundamental church that basically said, you know, my hope is built on nothing less than Schofield Notes and Scripture Press. I mean, that was <laughs> that was our song. <laughs> That's what we believed. That's what we held on to. And, and, and so I, when I was told, when I would ask my pastor somebody about, about, well, science says this and the Bible says this, they'd say, well, don't listen to science. Just believe what the Bible says. And uh, one of their mantras was, and we sang a song uh, that was similar. It was a Gaither song. I believe God said it. I believe it, and that's good enough for me. How many of you remember that song? Okay, God said it, I believe it, and that's good enough for me. The problem was, as a teenager, my secret little, my little secret in my soul was this. It wasn't good enough for me. It wasn't. Just to tell me to believe it, without any evidence, without any background, that wasn't good enough for me. And even though I wanted to be a good Christian boy, and I really loved God, and I wanted to do the right thing, I struggled with this idea of of, of school is telling me one thing, that science and evolution are God, and church is telling me something else. And how do I deal with that? Well, in college, I was involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, there were two things that helped me in this, this dilemma I was feeling between church and, and school, between science and faith and the Bible. 
Uh, one of those things was uh, somebody from InterVarsity showed me a science book uh, that was written in 1933. 1933, a science book. It was a college textbook. And here's a quote from that book. Quote, splitting the atom is scientifically impossible. End quote. Okay, that's, that's a quote, a scientific quote. Everybody reads that and they say, oh, it's science, it must be true. Well, 12 years later, <laughs> try and convince the residents of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that an atom couldn't be split. So, so that was one thing, recognizing that science isn't always up to speed on what's real, what's true. The second thing was a young, fiery preacher by the name of Josh McDowell that visited our college campus, San Diego State University, in 1968, when I was a junior. And, um, and he laid out what he called then the uh, evidence that demands a verdict. Later that became a book. But it was looking at the resurrection from a scientific or logical perspective. Those two things finally gave me permission as a young college student to think, to doubt, and to look at the evidence. Ever since then, it's been very important to me to look at the evidence. When people say, well, I just believe the Bible, I say, you know what, that's nice, but that's not really good enough. You need to investigate. You need to find out why you believe what you believe. You need to find out if the Bible is worth believing. If it's just some holy book that somebody wrote, wrote down a long time ago, why should you believe in it? You need to find out why. So that was kind of the search uh, that I was on. Christians can actually use their brains without fear. And, and, and that's what really brought me into uh, this message today. Because I hear all of my life, I've heard, because I've been around science people, um, that uh, their biggest objection is, well, that thing about the resurrection, that thing about the virgin birth, it's ridiculous, it just can't be. So let's begin with the classic text on the resurrection. First Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, turn there. We'll also put it up on the screen. First Corinthians 15. This is the classic text describing the resurrection and its importance to believers. So let's pick it up at verse one. I'll read verses one to six and then 17 to 18 from the New Living Translation. Hear the word of God. Let me now remind you, Paul is writing, Dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. Now remember, this was written about 25 years after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and then 40 days later ascended to heaven. About 25 years later, Paul is writing these words. So he says, you welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. Okay, that news of the resurrection, you welcomed it then, now you stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Okay? Paul says, use your brain. If it wasn't true, if this thing, the resurrection wasn't true, what are you doing in church? Why are you here? That's what Paul is saying. And then he goes on. I passed on to you what was most important and what, also, what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was sent by he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And, and, and then verse 16 uh, or 17, excuse me. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. 
and you are still guilty of your sins. If that's the case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. Very logical. Paul is saying, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then you're believing in him for your salvation is an absolutely ridiculous act. Don't go there. Go believe in something else because you don't want to believe in a, in a Jesus who said the power of my life is in the fact that I died and was raised again for your sins. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, your faith is useless. I have very little patience with Christians who say they're Christians, but they don't believe in the resurrection. You can't do that. <laughs> if you're a Christian, that's the whole substance of our faith is the resurrection. And so I want you to follow this logically with me today and ask this question of yourself. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ history or a hoax? So I read this last week about a guy who got this notice in the mail. Here's, here's, here's. A letter came from Health and Human Services uh, to a resident of Greenville County, South Carolina. That letter read as follows. Quote, your food stamps will be stopped effective March because we received notice that you passed away. May God bless you. May you reapply if your circumstances change. Sincerely, Health and Human Services. Now, how, how would you like to get a letter like that? I mean, come on. If your circumstances change, what does that mean? I mean, the person's dead. Now, in the world we live in, okay, us, Elephants don't fly, sorry Dumbo, and dead people don't rise from the dead. That's the world we live in. That's the reality. That's the reality we see all around us. I'm getting excited. I should, maybe I should move back. So this doctrine of the resurrection sets Christianity apart from all other religions. No other religions have their uh, their God or the one that they believe in raised from the dead. No other religion does that. This doctrine matters because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, he is both a liar and a lunatic. The text we read a few moments ago said no resurrection, no hope, no resurrection, no Christianity, no resurrection. You can't believe in Jesus. So that's why this doctrine is so critical to Christians today. Do you think Jesus rose from the dead? That's and you don't have to answer that. Do you, do you believe that deep in your heart? And if you do, God bless you, because many people just believe that by faith. And I believe that by faith. Absolutely. Because I'm saved by faith, not by my intellect. But but can a thinking person who is outside of Christ believe this? Let's don't check our brains at the door today. Let's take a look. Atheist Richard Dawkins writes, and he's a very brilliant man who is one of the leading atheists in our country. This is what he writes. The virgin birth, the resurrection are all freely used for religious propaganda. And they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. How does that make you feel? They kind of make you feel like a you know, real man or woman. You are an unsophisticate or a child if you believe in that. Uh, honey, would you um, throw me the ball? Okay, look. Good. I was afraid she was going to throw it over my head and I'd have to embarrass her. But... Um, so this is, a, this is a ball, and we all believe in the law of gravity. Uh, when I was in the sixth grade, I fell out of a tree and broke my arm. So I really believe in the law of gravity. I've experienced it. And all of us knows that uh, the law of gravity says that if, if I throw this ball up, it's going to hit the ground. Okay? If I throw this ball up, it's going to hit the ground. But what happens if I throw the ball up 
and then I intervene. Does that mean the law of gravity no longer exists? Does that mean that I've just disproved gravity? No, it means that something intervened into the physical world to change things. That was me. That's exactly what God did. Next time I'll throw it to Mike. Uh, uh, That's exactly what Jesus did. God intervened into the physical universe, the laws of gravity, and he changed something. It completely changed and did everything differently. The laws of gravity, the laws of nature, are descriptive. They're not restrictive. You need, those of you who are scientists know what I'm saying. They, they describe what happens, but they don't, nobody know, really knows. I mean, they can go into all kinds of details, but they're not restrictive because you can intervene in the laws of nature. Skeptics of the resurrection and other biblical miracles are often guilty of looking at the miraculous uh, without looking with an open mind. But I also say... For us here today, that Christians many times have been guilty of not using their minds. Too often, Christians have been just blindly believed something. God said it. I believe it. That's good enough for me. Well, you got more faith in it. That's not good enough for me. I mean, I believe it, but I want to know if there's some veracity, there's some truth, there's some historical uh, uh, context to what I believe. And so that's what I'd like to look at today. Now, a couple of sources I've used, you're familiar with, The Resurrection Factor by Josh McDowell and The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. Uh, I'd recommend those two books. There's many other books as well. But uh, what I'm going to do today for the next few minutes is turn this stage into a modified courtroom. Uh, I want to play Perry Mason. I used to love Perry Mason when I was a kid. And I've, I've never, I'm not a lawyer, but I love to uh, play Perry Mason. And I'm going to argue with you that the resurrection of Jesus is reasonable in light of historical events, I hope to prove that the evidence clearly points to a bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. So I put together four arguments, which I'll label exhibit A, B, C, and D. You are the jury. I simply ask you as members of the jury to listen with an open mind. If possible, remove all of your religious Christian training for a few minutes and just look at the evidence. Can a rational thinking person believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I tell you, jury, I believe that with all my heart. And let's look at the evidence. Exhibit A, the grave is empty. Now, first you say, well, that's no big deal. Well, listen, the empty grave is a fact that both friend and foe of Christianity have agreed upon. Did you know that? That history agrees upon the fact that the the grave was empty. The body of Jesus Christ was gone from the tomb. The Bible affirms that, but also early Jewish Roman historians like Josephus and Justin Martyr. uh, Both of them uh, critics. They were hostile sources to, uh, to the resurrection. So one thing we have to remember is the last thing the Jews and Romans wanted to do uh, wanted was the spread of Christianity. They did not want Christianity to spread. The reason Jesus was crucified is because that movement was spreading too fast as it was. They didn't want any part of that. That's why Christianity was outlawed by Roman government and why hundreds of thousands of Christians were killed in the next 90 years. Domitian, Domitian, Diocletian, uh, all of these guys, these Roman rulers, just crushed Christianity the best way they could. So, You tell me, what would have been the death blow to Christianity 
when the disciples started running around and proclaiming, he is, he's alive, he's alive, Jesus is risen from the dead, he's alive. What would you say? What would be the death blow to that? Tell me. Okay, uh, you're whispering. Tell me louder. Give us the body. You know, like uh, Tom Cruise, show me the money. No, show me the body. You know, you show me the body and then we will, uh, we will believe that. Put the body of Jesus Christ on a stretcher and prayed it through the streets of Jerusalem to everybody see. And guess what? Christianity dead. It doesn't go a minute further. Christianity is absolutely dead. Bye bye Christianity. Turn out the lights. The party's over. Christianity would have fizzled out like a couple of Alka-Seltzer tablets. It would just not be. But guess what happened? No one could produce the dead body. So what did the Jewish and Roman authorities do? They started with two objections, really two rumors. And you've heard these. Uh, some of this, uh, one of the objections was, well, uh, some claim that Jesus never really died. This is called the, anybody know? The swoon theory. Okay? The swoon theory. They said that Jesus never really died. He merely fainted or swooned from the exhaustion and loss of blood. After swooning, he recovered, made his way out of the tomb, and faked like he rose from the dead. In other words, he was faking it. He was playing dead. Now, people holding on to this view, and there are people today, right now, who hold on to this view, simply haven't done their homework on first century crucifixion and burial practices. Let me explain. Before crucifixion, executioners would whip the victim with 39 lashes made out of whip, a whip of, of leather with pieces of sharp bone and metal throughout it. Now, if you've seen the Passion of the Christ, that 11 minutes when he was scourged is the most difficult 11 minutes of, of video I've ever seen in my life. And every time I see it, I still cringe. That was a very realistic depiction of, of scourging. So the, the resurrection, uh, or excuse me, the crucifixion candidate would be lashed, 39 lashes made out of this whip of leather. Jesus, according to the Gospels, could barely walk to Golgotha, the place of the crucifixion. After the whipping, they would pound nails through his wrists and feet. And the victim then would hang there from a vertical position and basically over a period of uh, an hour to two hours would literally uh, die from lack of oxygen. Because of the way they were, they would actually pump with their feet to try and keep airflow. But eventually they would literally die from suffocation. The arms would stretch several inches. The shoulders would become dislocated and that person would die. Now, in the case of Jesus, after the trained executioners were certain of his death, they thrust a spear into his side all the way to the heart. That's why a mixture of blood and water flowed out just to make sure he was dead. So what do you think? Do you think he was playing dead? We have no recorded times in all of Roman history when a crucifixion person lived. Zero. Okay, that's history. That's not the Bible. That's history. So we have that historically. Nobody has ever survived that. In addition, it was the Romans who declared that he was dead. Not the Christians. Not the followers of Christ. It was the Romans that said in addition to that, they wrapped his body with strips of cloth soaked in spices. So it became kind of gummy and then it uh, and then it uh, dried. And when that wrapping dried, it weighed between 75 and 100 pounds. Now, that's how they placed Jesus in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. What do you think? Do you, what do you think of the swoon theory? It takes a lot of faith to believe in the swoon theory. I just can't buy it. It's much easier for me to believe in the physical resurrection. The second theory or objection that the Romans had was that the disciples stole the body. Okay, you've heard of that objection. Um, first, let's talk about the stone that sealed the cave-like grave. It was reported to be five feet high and weighed approximately two tons. 
4,000 pounds. And also it was guarded by 16 Roman guards who have sworn on their life that anything were to happen to the grave or to the body, they would be executed. And why? And let's say for somehow, some reason, you got past all of that—the the, the 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 stone and the sixteen guards. Why would the disciples steal the body in the first place if they could? What would their motivation be? I mean, why would they cart off Jesus' body, hide it somewhere, and over the next several decades endure ridicule, torture, and martyrdom to spread a lie? You know what? People don't die for a lie. They'll die for the wrong thing, but they'll believe in that wrong thing with all their heart. But people never die for a lie. Exhibit A, the empty grave. Uh, what happened to the body? Exhibit B, the eyewitnesses over 500 strong. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says that Jesus appeared to over 500 people after his death, many of them still alive at the time the apostle wrote 1 Corinthians. Paul's essentially saying to his readers, check out the stories. You've heard them. What do you think? You've heard those 500 witnesses. Many of them are still alive today. They're still talking about it. Check it out. Who's who's here to refute this? In Acts chapter 2, Peter addresses a large crowd in Jerusalem. Jesus supposedly has been risen from the dead and then 40 days later ascended to heaven. And that's when the day of Pentecost came. So this is 40 days after the resurrection. And in Acts 2.32, it says, so Jesus is, is the one whom God raised from the dead. And we are all witnesses to this. Who is he speaking to? He was speaking to thousands of Jerusalem citizens, thousands and thousands of them. Remember, because at the end of his sermon, how many of those people were saved, gave their hearts to Christ? Anybody remember? 3,000. 3,000. And when Jewish people counted a number, the number only counted the men. So some historians believe that it was just 3,000 men who came to Christ, probably another four or 5,000 women and children as well. Now, that doesn't happen if the general knowledge is that he wasn't resurrected from the dead. That can't happen. Now, this is historical. This isn't just out of the Bible. Acts 2.32, so Jesus is the one whom God raised from the dead, and we are all witnesses to this. Now, three quick facts about eyewitnesses. He's appealing to common knowledge. The people there, thousands and thousands of people hearing him teach, Peter teach, he said they knew the facts. They knew it. The execution had taken place in Jerusalem, and the resurrection had taken place, and people all there knew it was a fact. Nobody was there saying, it didn't happen, it didn't happen. Nobody was there. Another fact, disciples stayed in Jerusalem. If it was a fake, if they were hiding the body, do you think for a moment the disciples would have stayed in Jerusalem where people would have said, "Uh, no, 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 this didn't happen. We know it didn't happen. No, they would have gone to Athens or Rome or some other place where people didn't have firsthand knowledge. But they stayed there in Jerusalem. And another thing, what happens in Acts 2? Peter didn't get booed off the stage, but because of those 500 witnesses and all of the people who saw Jesus after the resurrection, like I said, over 3,000 people gave their hearts to Christ at the day of Pentecost. Exhibit B, eyewitnesses were all over the place, and history proves that. Exhibit C, the disciples uh, were radically changed. Now, this goes back to that very clear point, and you know this. If you were hiding a lie... You would not die for that lie. You wouldn't. You would find a way to have the truth revealed. You would not die for a lie. What were the disciples doing after the crucifixion? Just think about that. What were the disciples doing after the crucifixion? I'll tell you what they were doing. They were hiding. 
They were chicken. They were terrified. Our, our, our Messiah is dead. Our hope is dead. Our future is dead. Christianity is dead. That's exactly what they believed. They believed that. And they were hiding in an upper room, terrified that the government officials were going to come and take them and crucify them as well. They were terrified. So what turned these defection-prone pessimists into bold, daring, let's change the world leaders? What changed that? What made those timid become triumphant? What enabled the inept to do the impossible? I'll tell you, a risen Christ. And only a risen Christ could have done that. A dead body does not motivate. Right? A dead body does not motivate you to do something great and something big and something virtuous. A dead body does not motivate you to die for your sins. Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. The Jews and the Romans did everything to shut up these Christians. Nothing could stop them. And you have to answer the question, what caused the radical about face of these disciples? The answer, a risen Jesus. I would not die for a hoax or a sham. Neither would you. Skeptics object that there are religious wackos everywhere willing to die for their cause. That's very true. But remember, religious wackos die for their cause, but they really believe in their cause. But if someone doesn't believe in their cause, if they know in their head that it's really a sham, they would not die for that. But these Christians, thousands of them in the first century, gave their hearts to Christ, and many of them gave their lives to Christ as well. A risen Christ. Exhibit D. The convinced over one billion and counting. And that includes many of you. I could call to the witness stand a never-ending stream of people who have checked out and discovered the evidence, and they are convinced, absolutely convinced, as many of you are, that Jesus rose from the dead. This is not blind faith, but this is reasonable faith. One of the questions that was asked in the early century, the first century of Christianity, was when people would see other Christians on the road, they would ask this question, what evidence do you have that Christ is alive? Isn't that a great question? That's a question we should ask each other every day. What evidence do you have that Christ is alive? Let me quote you as we close a couple of heavyweight thinkers. One is, and I've read uh, some of his work, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, some of you have heard of him if you're in academia. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, a distinguished professor of law at Harvard University. Greenleaf wrote a three-volume work called Laws of Legal Evidence. Some of his students challenged him to apply the laws of legal evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which he did. After much work and against his wildest dreams, Dr. Greenleaf became a follower of Jesus Christ. His conclusion, and I quote, the resurrection is one of the best established facts of history according to the laws of legal evidence. Now, I could give you hundreds of these kinds of stories where people tried to show how that Christianity is not real and they come to the opposite conclusion and they give their hearts to Christ. But one other, Thomas Arnold, not Roseanne's husband, ex-husband, but the professor and chair of modern history at Oxford and the author of The History of Rome, studied the evidence and made his conclusion, and I quote, I know of no one fact in history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, we could go on all day with these kinds of things, but exhibit A, B, C, and D. What's your verdict? You're the jury. 
What's your verdict? Jesus said in Mark 10, 34, they will mock me and spit on me and flog me with their whips and kill me. But after three days, I will come back to life again. And he did. See, if that didn't happen, then Jesus is a liar and an imposter and the biggest flake in history of the world and the biggest scam in the history of the world. But if it did happen, it means two things. One is it proved who Jesus was. The Son of God. The one and only way to true salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I am the only way. I am the narrow way. I am the narrow gate. I am the one way to heaven. If you believe in the resurrection, it proved who Jesus was. And secondly, it validated what Jesus taught. That I can know God personally. That I can have a relationship with the creator of the universe and the creator of me. And I can have a relationship with him that will last for all eternity. It also validated that Jesus taught and proclaimed that we can be forgiven of our sins and we can start over. He has the power to restore a life. He has the power to transform a life. That's you and that's me. And it also validated the fact that you can go to heaven when you die, that you don't have to fear death, you don't have to fear anything, but you will go to heaven when you die. Those are the great truths and the great promises of the resurrected Christ. But if they're made by a lunatic... Don't bother coming back to church next week. It just doesn't make any sense to be a follower of someone who is such a hoax. But if his words are true, if the resurrection was true, it changes everything. So where is Jesus Christ in your life? Where is he in your life today? Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we just thank you for the amazing...